0: I always think the law is kind of like where we struggle the most because we have no authority to teach people.
1: Law. No kidding. Welcome back to the Common Law, the best and only podcast about the Minnesota Supreme Court. My name is Mark Thompson. I work at Nichols Castor, and I'm an ex-clerk for Justices David Lillehaug and Anne McKeg.
0: My name is Allison Key, and I was a clerk for Justices Strauss and Hudson.
1: We've got a statutory interpretation case today about the rights of tenants uh, when facing retaliation and also eviction, Uh, but before that, we've got a fair bit of legal news and some cases to catch you up on.
0: First, in legal news would be the results of the judicial election. So as many of our listeners likely already know, Justice Chudich did win re-election to another full term on the court uh, this November 6th. She won 55.88% of the vote to her challenger, Michelle McDonald's, 43.74% of the vote. So for comparison, uh, Justice Chudich's margin was wider than Justice Lillehaug's margin in the 2014 midterms. But Chudich's margin was smaller than Justice Hudson's 18-ish point margin over Michelle McDonald in the 2016 presidential election.
1: I haven't seen anyone uh, really speculate very much about how this happened. But I guess I find this result especially disturbing in that I think back in 2014, there was some confusion about whether the GOP uh, was endorsing Michelle McDonald or She at least was not as clear a figure in the public mind. Here we are in 2018. She's run these campaigns over and over again. Uh, I think it's fairly clear that she doesn't have the qualifications that we would hope for from someone running for this office and yet continues getting, you know, a significantly substantial minority of votes. Why that's occurring is kind of beyond me.
0: And what's interesting, I think, about how this kind of panned out in comparison to Justice Lillehaugge and Justice Hudson's races is we didn't publish that portion of the audio, but she predicted that she would do better than she did in 2016 simply because she believes a lower turnout election actually favors her. Um, so it turns out she was right on with that prediction.
1: I'm just not sure who the people are that go to vote for Michelle McDonald. I guess you're voting against the incumbent. That's the only thing I can I can think of, which Justice Trudich certainly personally has done nothing to initiate a a campaign against her personally, and and I don't think that the Supreme Court as an institution has uh, done anything to suggest that there should be an anti-incumbency wave. So I I just find it really concerning that we have these relatively small margins uh, in races that should not be seriously contested.
0: So Judge Jessen also won against her challenger, A.L. Brown, in the only contested court of appeals race. Her margin was actually higher than the margin of victory at the Supreme Court, with Judge Jessen prevailing by about 25 points, netting 63% of the vote. All of the other uncontested justices on the ballot all obviously won, but what was interesting to me about the results here is that the write-ins the write-in percentages for judicial campaigns are just wildly high, which I think just goes to show that there's a true lack of information in the seriousness um, of these races and the candidates that are running uncontested and people might think the stakes are low enough to write people in. I mean, who are the 15,000 people who wrote in someone instead of voting for Chief Justice Gilday? Like, who do they think that was to benefit?
1: This is a, a segment called The Common Law Gets Lectury about the Minnesota electorate. But honestly, um, like these are important offices. And to a large degree, I think courts in general, and and we could say for the Minnesota Supreme Court, uh, there are rules in place. But the day-to-day functioning of the place uh, is largely dependent on, on good faith, highly competent, intelligent, and collegial people uh, coming together with a, a goal of producing good work product and and uh, clarifying the law for the state of Minnesota. And if we had someone who was not qualified to do that come onto the court, I, I'm not sure how well the institution would hold up.
0: So Michelle McDonald has been defeated now for a third time, but she hasn't ruled out another 2020 run, which she did mention to us in our discussion with her last month. We didn't end up publishing that specific portion of our interview with her in our previous episode but we did post the audio of that specific answer of hers on our twitter feed so you can take a listen to that and see what she has to say about 2020 and running for the court in perpetuity
1: and i think you'd uh, you'd have to think that she'll keep running i mean 43 percent is just a huge margin for someone uh with no real formal campaign uh you know i, I don't really even know how, how much like time and effort it's costing her to uh to run in these races every two years
0: So I know we're all kind of wary of any discussion of 2020 for the foreseeable future, but we can just say from a judicial election standpoint that Justices Haug and Thiessen, who are both up in 2020, may have to watch out for Michelle McDonald coming for them in 2020. Both of them are Democratic appointed, which she told us was her main criteria in trying to decide who to run against. And in our discussion with her, we did kind of tip her off that she should probably run against the most junior justice. So sorry, Justice Tyson for putting that target on your back. But I think he has enough experience running for election that he'll probably manage just fine.
1: Um, that, that transitions, perhaps, uh, briefly to an article uh, by David Schultz that was in the uh, Pioneer Press, uh, an op-ed suggesting that we appoint rather than elect judges in Minnesota. So... Uh, he provides some useful background here, which is that uh, when the state constitution was passed in 1848, it provided for judicial elections with appointment by the governor in case of vacancy. That's how we ended up at the state of play that we have right now. And he, he has a law review article coming out, and it sounds like he he's kind of dissecting two different ways that we could handle this. So one is letting judges run like political candidates, um, and that would be uh, getting a party endorsement, uh, publicizing positions as to uh, policy issues, et cetera. And he notes that one, there's a fair bit of US Supreme Court uh, jurisprudence and other jurisprudence that would make that difficult for judicial candidates, that they are uh, hamstrung as far as how they can do fundraising, uh, et cetera. And uh, also on that score that the kind of recent Judge Kavanaugh proceedings should be uh, a warning note about the dangers of politicizing the judiciary. And then the other alternative that he's more favorably disposed to is, uh, the straight appointment of judges. So right now when there's a vacancy, the governor appoints the judge, but as we were just discussing with judge, uh, other justice Thieson, uh, he was appointed by governor Dayton, but he will have to run, uh, in 2020 and, uh, he'll be a regular elected judge from there on out. And, uh, so David Schultz is proposing getting rid of that, uh, Getting rid of elections, full stop. And I suppose based on our fairly brief discussion just now, I would not stand in the way of that proposal.
0: So I'm assuming in his upcoming uh, article that he is going to publish, he'll kind of go through how other states do it. Um, But I think Minnesota is actually in the norm in terms of how it handles state judicial elections, which is there is kind of an intermediate appointment process for midterm retirements, um, that are kind of funneled through a judicial selection committee. So it's not a true appointment by the governor in the sense that there is kind of an independent commission that recommends to the governor who will be appointed, and then the governor makes a decision based on that. But then I think Minnesota is in the norm with most states who do then require that judges run for re-election, which is kind of the mechanism that most states have used to make sure that there aren't anyone without proper qualifications or who have suddenly been swayed in some direction or the other to make sure that they are not continuing to influence the judicial stakes in that state
1: yeah a couple other interesting things from his article which we can put in the show notes uh one 90 of judges in minnesota are initially appointed uh, by the governor through the process that allison just described rather than being elected uh in the first instance so in in effect given how few people run uh against incumbent judges and secondly how uh rarely incumbent judges lose when challenged, we already have appointments. Um, And the other thing he notes is that in Minnesota, we've been fortunate to avoid some of the hijinks that have occurred in other states. So he he notes uh, the West Virginia Supreme Court where a ton of money poured into judicial elections after uh, judges were casting controversial votes as to uh, liability for high dollar amounts of coal companies that were native to West Virginia, the kind of things that, you know, the tough votes that judges have to make uh, and adhere to the law, and how when you have elections, uh, you you should be prepared for judges to face unpleasant consequences from those tough votes. And I, I think he thinks that's no way to... Uh, Ensure an independent judiciary.
0: Another fascinating thing that has come about relating to the Minnesota Supreme Court this past month is something that I'm sure everyone in the universe has heard by now, that Justice Page was awarded a Presidential Medal of Freedom. So for our listeners who may be less familiar, Justice Page was the first black member of the Minnesota Supreme Court, and he was also the last person who was ever elected to an open seat rather than the appointment process we just described. And he was elected in 1992 after two incredibly successful careers, both in the NFL and then also as an attorney at the Minneapolis firm of Linquist and Venom. So, what I love most about this story and, and what has happened in the media as a result of him being um, honored with this award is that there's been a genuine outpouring of acknowledgement of how great of a person. That Justice Page is. Regardless of what you think of the current president and whether Justice Page should or should not have accepted this award, it was really heartening to see that the focus of this entire thing was really Justice Page and all of his accomplishments, both in the NFL and on the Supreme Court and his work at the Page Foundation. That said, a lot of attention has been focused on a particular quote of his from a CBS news story that came out this past January, in which he said of the current president, given the license the current administration has given to people to feel comfortable in their bigotry, it seems to me on some level we are moving backwards. So there's a lot of talk about whether he would accept this award, whether it was appropriate for him to accept this award, given his stances, his public stances on uh, the current administration. And Justice Page did address some of those concerns and and that controversy with an op-ed that he wrote in the Star Tribune on November 15th. Uh, The op-ed carries the headline, Alan Page on receiving the Presidential Medal of Freedom. It is an honor, but it's really not about me. And I'll just read a little bit from his op-ed where he explains his decision to accept this award. It is an honor to have been awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom. But as I have said on a number of occasions in the past, I'm never quite sure that I'm worthy of such recognition. When I look at the list of the medal's previous recipients, I ask myself, how did my name come to be included with icons of the civil rights movement like Rosa Parks or people like Dr. Robert Coles, who spent his life documenting the effects of poverty on children? I conclude the honor is not really about me. Then he goes on to discuss the group of people whom he believes this honor is about, including his family, civil rights leaders and victims of the Birmingham Baptist Church bombing, Page scholars supported by his foundation, his athletic role models, and then his late wife, Diane Sims Page. He then ends, mere words are inadequate to express the debt of gratitude I owe this group of people. When I think about these people in the context of the Presidential Medal of Freedom, I am reminded of the first three words of the preamble to the Constitution. Those words are, we the people. I am also reminded that the White House is the people's house. We live in a time when our passions cause us to spread more heat than light. I believe the voices of all the people who have contributed to who I am deserve to be brought into the light and represented, heard, and seen in the people's house. It is on their behalf and in their honor that I accept the Presidential Medal of Freedom. So he's apparently now among a very limited list of Minnesotans who have won this award, joining former Vice President Hubert Humphrey, Former SCOTUS Chief Justice Warren Berger and Bob Dylan. So, another example of what a swell guy Justice Page is.
1: Last bit of legal news is an interview with Justice G. Barry Anderson in Bench and Bar magazine. Uh, Fun note this interview was conducted by John Schmidt, who was the attorney for the state in the Common Law's first episode, uh, which covered the State v. Edstrom case concerning uh, curtilage in an apartment building. Just a couple notes uh, from this interview. Uh, One, Justice Anderson was asked how his prior jobs contributed to his decision-making ability. And uh, if you ever get the chance to hear Justice Anderson speak, I recommend it. He is endlessly uh, charming and has anecdotes for days. So immediately he jumped to his first job as a handyman at the Cliff Kay's Hotel in Mankato, um, where he apparently was insufficiently handy. Um, The the other thing I wanted to note from the interview is he predicts a uh, Minnesota Vikings championship uh, at some point. Uh, but it's smart enough not to even give a ballpark of when that might be. I recommend checking out the whole interview. Uh, it's a delight, and we will put a link to it in the show notes.
0: So now moving on to resulted cases that have since been published since our last episode. We first have what was our one of our featured cases, our last featured case remaining from season one of The Common Law. The case was in remarriage of Gill, And this was the case about how we divide a gelato empire after a marriage has dissolved. The ultimate question in this case, if you remember, was a lot simpler than the facts that you had to slog through to get there. Um, So just bear with me as I recap the case facts before we get to the holding. So husband Gil and wife Gil, during their marriage at issue here, helped run Talenti Gelato. In 2008, husband purchased a majority ownership in the interest in the Talenti company, and then in 2014, he filed for divorce from wife. In the time between 2008, when he purchased a majority interest in Talenti, and 2014, when he filed for divorce, the value of Talenti grew significantly. So after filing for divorce, but while the dissolution proceeding was pending, Husband in 2014 helped negotiate a sale of Talenti for $180 million to Unilever, plus two earnout payments that were contingent on future company performance up to $170 million. So, this is where Dean Phillips, the now congressman elect from the third district, was credited with nearly sinking the entire deal while trying to get a better price out of Unilever at his lake home. At the dissolution proceeding the following year in 2015, husband and wife agreed to equally divide the 180 million payment that the purchaser made when the sale of the company closed, but they disagreed about whether those additional earnout payments were in fact marital property that could be divided equally or whether they belonged strictly to husband. So at the Minnesota Supreme Court, the issue was whether the future contingent earnout payments were marital property that could be divided or non-marital property that belonged to husband. So the Minnesota Supreme Court, in a 4-2 decision with TISA not participating, authored by Justice Chudich, ruled that the right to receive these earnout payments that were memorialized in a purchase agreement for the sale of the marital property was itself marital property. So Gretchen Gill will get her share of those earnout payments. Just briefly, Justice Chudich started her analysis explaining the rationale of marital property, and she says... The idea of marital property is grounded in the principle that marriage is a partnership and that each partner should get out of the marriage a fair share of what was put into it. In Nardini v. Nardini, we explained, marriage is a joint enterprise whose vitality, success, and endurance is dependent upon the conjunction of multiple components, only one of which is financial. The extent to which each of the parties contributes to the marriage is not measurable only by the amount of money contributed to it during the period of its endurance, but rather by the whole complex of financial and non-financial components contributed. When a marriage ends, each spouse, based on the totality of the contributions made to it, has a stake in and right to a share of the marital assets accumulated while it endured. She says, We have therefore interpreted marital property expansively, so as not to ignore the presumption that each spouse contributed to the acquisition of property while they lived together as husband and wife. So Justice Chuditch ended up reasoning for the court that because the marital asset itself was sold in exchange for the possibility of an earnout payment, the possibility of the earnout payment was also marital property.
1: I think this is the right result, um, and it sounds well reasoned. I, I guess one thing I found interesting about it and it's probably inevitable for the court. Is that there's just a lot of like moralizing that has to happen uh, when you're determining the boundaries of marital property and and moralizing that inevitably is kind of along traditionalistic lines. Uh, you know the facts of this case present uh, a, a man who was involved in a big business deal and uh, a woman who was the wife. So I I don't know from a, a fairly kind of forward thinking progressive court, it, it's strange to me to hear. Uh, sentences like this but uh, I think they did a good job with it.
0: So Justice Anderson did write a dissent that was joined by the chief a common pairing these days so make sure to go back and listen to our episode on in remarriage of Gill and we'll post the link to the opinion and the Minnesota lawyer article summarizing it in our show notes. So another case that has resulted that we think would be worth bringing to your attention is a case that brought us Justice Thiessen's first authored decision. This was a dissent that he wrote in the case Depositors Insurance Company v. Delansky that was heard on June 5th of this year. So this was his second day of oral argument this case was heard. And we noted when we covered the Johnson case the day before that he was pretty active on the bench. And then the next day, he dissents in this case. So he's definitely hitting the ground running here. And not just
1: a dissent, a a solo dissent, which are somewhat unusual on the court, and and a lengthy one and and well-written. So he's off to the races.
0: Yes. So the majority in Depositors v. Delansky was authored by Justice Hudson. Justice Lillehaug then wrote a concurrence joined by Chief Justice Gilday, not your typical pairing. Then Justice Thiessen wrote a dissent, as Mark said on his own. This dissent is 17 pages. It is longer than the majority. So if you remember, he joined the court in its last month of the 2017-2018 sitting. Then the court took two months off. So it's both surprising and not surprising that he decided to use his time from the first month of argument on the court to actually write something in the first three months when he had probably a lighter load. So here's the skinny behind the case. Craig Delansky rented an RV from a company called Caravan Trailers. The rental agreement provided that Delansky would be responsible for all damage or loss to the vehicle while he rented it, and that same agreement required him to carry insurance covering the vehicle. While Delansky was renting the vehicle, it caught fire while he was driving it in Nebraska, apparently from unknown causes. Leading to pretty significant damage totaling over $200,000. I am not sure how you spontaneously convest an RV, uh, but Justice Hudson's opinion does note that nothing in the record suggests that intentional acts by Delansky caused the fire or the subsequent damage to the RV, which I believe is supposed to be a legal clarification, but as a practical matter, leaves me with more questions than answers. <laughs> Caravan then submitted a claim to Delansky's insurer, which did not pay the claim in full. Caravan then submitted a claim to its own insurer, Depositors Insurance Company, and Depositors did pay the remainder of Caravan's claim. Then Caravan's insurance company sued Delansky to recover the cost of what his own insurer would not pay for the damage to the RV. So the issue at the Minnesota Supreme Court concerns the scope of a specific Minnesota statute that states an insurance company providing insurance coverage may not proceed against its insured in a subrogation action where the loss was caused by the non-intentional acts of the insured. So Delancey reads that statute and says, under your policy at Caravan, where I rented the RV, I'm your insured, so you cannot sue me to recover the leftover damages here. Depositors, which is Caravan's insurer, reads that statute and says Delansky was not its insured because he did not purchase a policy from Depositors Insurance Company. So Justice Hudson's majority sides with Delansky that Delansky was its insured, and therefore the prohibition on going after him in the statute prevents Depositors Insurance Company from going after Delansky for the money to fix this RV.
2: And why isn't he insured by depositors since uh, Section 2A under who is an insured says that an insured is anyone else um, while using, with your permission, a covered auto that you own. And the your, of course, there is referring to Caravan. And I don't think there's any question that Caravan, under the rental agreement it had with Mr. Delansky, gave him permission to use, the, uh, to use the the RV. So, yes, he has an insurance policy with American family, but the district court um, and the court of appeals basically said under that provision, he also isn't insured here. Why isn't that the case?
1: I think this, this opinion is a fun one, even though it's about insurance subrogation, because it's such a thorough uh, tour through the tools of statutory interpretation that the court uses. And sometimes the court is more explicit about the decisions it's making uh and the sequence of statutory interpretation uh, tools that it's using and sometimes it kind of glides through one or two of them without acknowledging really what's happening and this is the former uh, which i find satisfying so they first go straight to black's law dictionary uh, to try to find the definition of insured They determined that there are two possible reasonable definitions of insured which would lead to different outcomes here, and they dispose of a few arguments about uh, using other statutes and such to uh, try and glean a meaning.
0: I do have to point out as a former Strauss clerk that though it's frequently mistaken as a common and ordinary meaning source, Black's Law Dictionary is actually rooted in technical definitions for the law, but Justice Hudson did also use Common and ordinary dictionaries like the American Heritage Dictionary and Webster's Third New International Dictionary, which are more common and ordinary meaning definitions.
1: Justice Strauss is a lovely man. Justice Strauss's clerks are at times insufferable. (laughs) After they uh, get through the dictionary, they conclude that uh, the statute is ambiguous and that they have to determine which of the two reasonable uh, definitions applies. So first, uh, they note, when a statute is ambiguous, you can look to the legislative history. However, here, the parties don't provide, uh, nor could the court locate, any helpful legislative history.
2: You know, if we say it's ambiguous, either because, you know, that's how it became ambiguous, as you said, because of how the Court of Appeals interpreted, but then that takes you to legislative history. And... We've searched, and there really is none, and neither party has cited us to anything.
1: Uh, Then they look to policy considerations. They explicitly say this, uh, and they note that uh, interpreting insurance policies and determination of coverage, uh, the disparity between the insurance companies and those seeking insurance uh, with regard to bargaining power is significant and leads to a background rule of interpreting uh, ambiguous statutes in favor of insurance holders. Subsequently, they look to pass jurisprudence. They do a full survey of Minnesota Supreme Court cases from decades ago that are possibly relevant to this uh, decision. And finally, they wrap things up.
0: So like Mark says, Justice Hudson does wind through various aids of interpretation and construction to come to this conclusion. We remain firm in our conclusion that the word insured in MINSTAT 60A.41A encompasses any party covered by some part of the insurance policy at issue. She then interprets the policy to determine that Delansky is covered by some part of that insurance policy, largely because Delansky was given permission by Caravan to use the vehicle.
1: I think Ellison and I, as, as clerks, were often looking for an even more explicit delineation of the sequence of statutory interpretation, what tools are inbounds and out-of-bounds, at, at what point of the process, pre- or post-finding of ambiguity? Um, and this doesn't get all the way there, but it's the best uh, such discussion that I've seen in a little while from the court.
0: Then we get to Thiessen's dissent. So before we talk about it, we should say that the gist of Justice Thiessen's dissent is that he actually agrees with Justice Hudson that the language is ambiguous. But he ultimately concludes, quote, that a person isn't insured under Section 60A.41A only when the person seeking immunity under the anti-subrogation rule is in fact covered for the loss at issue.
1: One part of this dissent that I found interesting, aside from the rather bold, just nature of a a single person, 17 page dissent on your second day as a justice. And that sounds like I'm being critical. I actually think it's pretty cool that Justice Thiessen is on the court and he is uh, going to just take to the job straight away. Uh, So uh, part of that that I found interesting in the dissent is I think he's bringing his experience as a state legislator to the bench immediately. Um, And it might go too far to call this like a a personal dissent. tone in the in the dissent, but it's a pretty impassioned tone, I think, from someone who has been at the legislature, probably in the drafting room, uh, trying to work out the language of these bills and, and on the floor, listening to testimony. And I think you can hear someone who's frustrated at what he feels is a miscomprehension of the legislature's attempt to solve a problem in a way that's uh, a little more direct than uh, you usually get. Uh, so a, a fun perspective and one I think we'll probably get in the future.
0: Definitely a fun perspective, and I think that's what we were hoping we would see from Justice Thiessen when he came straight from the legislature over to the court, particularly in these cases of statutory interpretation, which do rest on what was the legislature trying to do, what was their intent, and having someone who was so intimately involved in that process for so long certainly has the potential to shape how a lot of the justices in the court think about those issues. So, reading Justice Hudson's majority opinion, um, so she repeatedly cites Justice Strauss's highly textual opinion, Thonesavon, for her analysis, which, based on Thiessen's public statements through his tweets, is an opinion that Justice Thiessen is not particularly impressed by. So, I just want to take a quick detour and do a brief reprise of top Thiessen tweets. And talk about these tweets because I do think they give a clue to Justice Thiessen's judicial philosophy, like Mark said, informed in great part by his prior experience as a legislator. And I think it's important in combination with dissent in considering how things will move for him in the court going forward. On September 6, he tweeted one of his On This Day tweets about the case Thon v. State. And after explaining the facts and the result, he says... The case is a good example of what is known as a textualist analysis, a sometimes complicated superstructure of various rules that courts overlay on a text to discern legislative intent. Which canons a court chooses can be decisive of the outcome. In particular, courts turn to, sometimes usefully, dictionary definitions. Setting aside that dictionary definitions often differ, it was a rare occasion when I witnessed a legislator pull out a dictionary in the course of lawmaking. So that's a really interesting perspective on Justice Thiessen stating that he doesn't believe a textualist analysis really gets to the heart of legislative intent as he saw legislators legislating. Um, And I agree, he did seem somewhat incredulous at times about how the court chose to go about interpreting a statute that was not what he considered consistent with his personal experience. But by all indications, it sounds like he is not interested in a textualist analysis. He is more interested in the intent of the legislature as they're passing the law. So it will be interesting to see what arguments do sway Justice Thieson because we are not familiar yet with his jurisprudence.
1: It'll be really interesting because even as I think probably in in the popular uh, conception of the Minnesota Supreme Court to the extent it exists, I think people understand it to be a A court largely appointed by Democratic governors, uh, full of liberal-leaning people, probably, as I imagine is what the the public thinks. Nonetheless, it is a pretty strictly textualist court. Heavy on dictionaries, heavy on uh, plain meaning of words, even when uh, you could argue that a more purposive uh, approach that is uh, placing more weight on what the legislator might have been trying to accomplish uh, would be appropriate. So... Whether Justice Thiessen will be out on an island uh, with interpretations like this, if indeed they continue, or whether he can uh, assemble perhaps a caucus uh, to use this approach more regularly will be something to keep an eye on. So he talks a lot about the importance of what the purpose of the law was once we have found it ambiguous, as both the majority and him in dissent found. And he refers uh, repeatedly to what the legislature was trying to accomplish here. It's his take that the legislature was not intending a blanket immunity for insureds in cases like this, that you need to look for a nexus between the type of coverage sought and the incident giving rise to the claim.
0: He says his conclusion about the purpose of the law is supported by common law doctrine on the area from before the statute was enacted, which he also spent a lot of time discussing in oral argument.
3: Well, and doesn't it make sense
1: in light of Minnesota's longstanding common law? I mean, we have this statute here, and we just ruled last week that statutes have to be interpreted consistent with common law, and we have, like, we have the Dairyland case from the, from the 70s, which is essentially this case, but it's decided that you have to look at which section of the, which section of the contract you're covered by. So, I mean, frankly, I mean, in my experience, I don't think the legislature's probably spent a whole lot of time thinking through what the word insured meant, um... But I do think we have this background of common law, which actually informs a lot of what this is.
0: Justice Thiessen ends up deciding that the record is not clear on whether Delansky was actually covered by this policy, and he would instead remand back to the district court to find that fact and then allow the parties to argue and brief it on the way back up. One other cute fact about this case is that I went to go listen to argument to see um, what Justice Thiessen was doing in oral argument. Um, but what I found hilarious about this case is that the webcast posting said this depositors V. Delansky. due to technical difficulties, the first few minutes of these arguments are unavailable, which I'm sorry if it's not funny to literally anyone else, but this most likely means that the clerks who marshaled oral argument <laughs> and are responsible for hitting the start button forgot to hit the start button, which I obviously know from not personal experience. Yeah, it's
1: definitely not something else did. Now, finally, time for our feature case, Central Housing Authority v. Olson. Uh, This is a landlord-tenant case, and uh, we can do facts uh, with Allison.
0: So this case started back in 2016 when a tenant named Olson entered into a year-long apartment lease with a landlord, Central Housing Associates, approximately halfway through his lease Central Housing Associates gave Olson a written notice that it was terminating his lease due to Olson's breach of multiple lease terms, which they said included submitting false information on his application, failing to pay rent, sharing his unit with a personal care attendant with a criminal record, disqualifying her from residing there, and tolerating disruptive behavior. So after receiving this notice, Olson then filed a report with the Minnesota Department of Human Rights, Olson claimed in that report to the Minnesota Department of Human Rights that the Landlord Central Housing Associates only began taking note of these lease violations after he had complained to the landlord in an email that a maintenance worker had verbally harassed his daughter for wearing a hijab. So Olson alleged in this Minnesota Human Rights Department report that the Landlord Central Housing Associates discriminated against him on the basis that both that he has a disability and that his daughter is a Muslim. So to quick recap, the timeline is that Olson signed a lease. Olson complains via email to the landlord central housing associates about his daughter being verbally harassed. Olson starts hearing about lease violations from landlord central housing associates. Landlord central housing associates gives notice to evict Olson on the basis of these violations Finally, Olson files a complaint with the Minnesota Department of Human Rights alleging retaliation for his complaints. So Olson refused to vacate the property, and so after his lease period ended, Central Housing Associates filed a holdover eviction action. A jury trial then followed. So the jury ended up finding two facts that are relevant to our story. First, it found that Olson did materially violate the terms of his lease. Second, it found that the landlord's central housing associates retaliated against Olson in whole or in part as a penalty for his good faith attempt to secure or enforce rights under the lease or the laws of the state of Minnesota or the United States.
3: Mr. Olson defended the residential uh, eviction action by alleging retaliation. The jury found two facts. First, that Mr. Olson breached his lease. Second, that the eviction was intended to retaliate against Mr. Olson for asserting his rights.
1: So the main statute that's at issue here is Minnesota statute 504B.441. So I'll read you a slightly abbreviated version of this statute that uh, gets to the heart of the issue here. The statute says, a residential tenant may not be evicted if the eviction is intended as a penalty for the residential tenant's complaint of a violation. Complaint of a violation is the phrase that we're going to be dealing with in this case. Uh, The word complaint is not defined anywhere in the chapter. That's why the court has so much work to do here. So that's the main statute that's at issue that the tenant is seeking to assert a retaliation defense under.
0: So the more relevant part of the Court of Appeals opinion for our purposes at the Supreme Court is that the Court of Appeals held that the retaliation defense isn't available to Olson here because it is only triggered on the basis of a, quote, complaint. And the Court of Appeals reasoned that a, quote, complaint, in that sense, meant a formal complaint to initiate a lawsuit, not a mere expression of dissatisfaction like the email Olson sent to its landlord about his daughter being harassed, or even a complaint to the Minnesota Department of Human Rights. So in this way, the Court of Appeals says it doesn't matter that the jury found that Central Housing Associates' retaliated against Olson for that quote-unquote complaint because it's not the type of complaint addressed in 441 which protects against retaliation by the landlord. So Olson then petitioned to the Minnesota Supreme Court for review on the 441 retaliation argument only saying that this informal quote complaint to the landlord should trigger the retaliation protections in 441 absent even this formal complaint to initiate a lawsuit
1: The other statute that's in play here is uh, 504B.285, which also deals with landlord-tenant conflicts. And there are a few subdivisions that play a small role. Uh, Subdivision 2 creates a right for tenants to plead a retaliation defense uh, in cases where there's been a notice to quit. Subdivision 3 creates a right for tenants to plead a retaliation defense in a non-payment case. But subdivision 4, which the landlord leans on quite heavily, says that nothing contained in those prior two subdivisions limits the right of a landlord to terminate a tenancy for a violation by the tenant of a lawful material provision of the lease. So uh, at least with regard to that statutory scheme, uh, subdivision four is saying in some instances, a retaliation defense does not exist. Uh, The scope of that is, is something that's debated throughout the case.
0: So moving to then the oral argument and the arguments that the attorneys and parties put forth, the first attorney to argue was Olson's attorney. This was Samuel Spade of the organization Homeline, and his basic argument was first obviously based on provision 441 in which he says that complaint as it's used in 441 means any expression of dissatisfaction to anyone, including a landlord.
3: Mr. Olson should be protected under 441 for the simple reason that landlords should not be allowed to punish their tenants for complaining about a problem. Certainly in the ordinary sense of the word, he complained about problems. And courts generally deviate from the ordinary meaning of the word only if a word is used in a technical sense or acquired a special meaning. And here, complaint has not been used in a technical sense or acquired a special meaning.
0: So immediately after Olson's attorney makes this plain meaning argument, the attorney faces some pushback pretty clearly um, and decisively, specifically from Justice Hudson.
2: Because when you look at the current TRA statute, the use of the word complaint clearly seems to well not clearly it it does it refers to a formal complaint that one files with the district court so if that's true and we're to look at the entire statute to determine to help determine the you know the meaning of of complaint in 441 where does that leave us
1: another thing that i thought was interesting here is like the uh, earlier insurance case with the Justice Thiessen dissent that we discussed, there's a bit of a library of statutory interpretation techniques discussed by the parties and by the court. So uh, we talked about the plain language. uh, We talked about uh, the common definition of complaint. Uh, The landlord also makes an argument that complaint must refer to a legal filed complaint because uh, the title of this statute uh, is tenant remedies action, which makes it sound like more of a legally inflected complaint and less of a uh, you know email to your landlord type thing. Uh, and the landlord also argues separately that the canon that courts must give effect to all statutes pertaining to a topic applies here because giving this statute a broad reading would impinge on some of what's accomplished by the other statute we discussed earlier, uh, 504b.285, which appears to allow landlords to evict uh, tenants without qualification in these circumstances. So uh, more interesting than the actual arguments at play to me is that the court is uh, just giving a tour of all of the tools available to it. And I think you could see uh, the chief justice uh, taking that route.
2: In, in, in making a decision about whether a statute is ambiguous, we read the words in context, in context of the overall statute. What is your position about which statutory provisions we can look to in determining the context of 0.441.
1: One other note I thought was interesting in the statutory interpretation uh, discussion is that the court was spending its time in the weeds of these statutes. Um, But one thing that is often absent and that I really appreciate about Justice McCaig is she's just willing to bring to a discussion like this uh, the common sense analysis that is often left out. Uh, lawyers in their fancy suits don't like to talk about what is sometimes the most obvious thing in the room, and and she does, and and so she did that here.
2: But council isn't the the majority of complaints that are made by landlord or excuse me by tenants in the less formal realm. I mean, how many tenants actually file who are self represented, who are living in low income housing, who are disabled, who have all of these um, additional um, problems, or barriers, how many of them actually file a civil complaint and serve it on the landlord? Does that make sense to you, that that would be the
0: normal course? So then I think, um, seeing Justice McKegg's opening there, uh, the attorney for Olson on rebuttal did seize on that, highlighting arguments made by the amicus brief filed by Renters United, suggesting that Justice McKegg is right. It is not in the normal course to file a formal complaint, which is why the court should maybe read a less formal interpretation of 441 in their decision here.
3: Most tenants do not file court cases. As the amicus clearly pointed out in Hennepin County, uh, about three TRAs are filed a year. If you do the math, that would come to maybe around 10 or 12 TRAs in the whole state per year. This obviously is dwarfed by the number of actual complaints, informal complaints that tenants would make to their landlords about repairs, and so on.
1: A brief detour, there was a a common law portion of this argument. So the tenant noted that the majority rule in courts that have considered this issue uh, across the country favors the existence of a common law defense uh, in retaliation situations like this, uh, in addition to any statutory cause of action that might exist, and notes that, uh, indeed, before Minnesota enacted uh, these anti-retaliation statutes, uh, at least one Minnesota trial court found that a common law right existed. Uh, It is
3: uh, possible um, to have both the common law and Minnesota statute 504B.441 running parallel to each other, but second, uh, this court obviously has the power to establish uh, common law, um, and I think that to some extent it's already present in Minnesota.
1: The landlord pretty strenuously opposes the existence of a common law defense, uh, noting that the legislature has legislated pretty specifically in this area and that uh, it's a truism that when the legislature's words expressly or necessarily uh, preclude application of the common law, then they overrule the common law.
0: And certainly that argument from the landlord was pretty compelling to specifically Justice Hudson and then also the chief who are also questioning the wisdom of the court adopting a common law retaliation doctrine when statutes seem to address the issue sufficiently.
2: As I understand your position, even if we uh, disagree with you on the statutory piece, Um, Your position is that um, this court uh, should create uh, a new common law action, and I guess I I just want to express a concern about that and get your response. It's, you know, many courts um, have established uh, a defense of retaliation in the absence of uh, anti-retaliation legislation, but here we've got a statute that quite explicitly provides for that, both in... uh, 285, but also here in the the Tenant's Remedies action. And so I'm just wondering, given this court's historical reluctance to create new common law causes of action when the legislature has spoken, um, and here it seems to me they've done that, what would be the basis or the reason for us doing that? So the remedy that you're seeking here seems to me to be already available in state statute, even apart from the landlord-tenant statutes, which I think further informs whether there's really a vacuum that this court needs to step
0: into so on the converse side of the common law argument justice tutich in particular seemed open at least to the possibility of considering a common law retaliation doctrine specifically because the Tenant Remedies Act is intended to provide, quote, additional remedies, which could be read, and Olson does read, as permitting a common law retaliation doctrine, even though the statute is also on point. Can you tell me, um, referring to that section where the legislature specifically gives the reason why it's enacted these sections and it says to provide additional remedies. Um, how are we to interpret that? I know in in some other states, they've viewed that as um, indicating that there is some common law remedy available.
1: A few odds and ends we wanted to cover. Uh, one, Justice Anderson has a habit. He likes to ask, he has one question in mind and he wants both attorneys to answer it. We've seen him do that a few times. I'm not sure I've seen him do what he did here, though, which is ask the question at what he knows is the very conclusion of the first attorney's time, such that the attorney will not be permitted time to answer the question, and instead will have to do so on rebuttal.
4: Counsel, I have a question that maybe it's more appropriate for you to ponder and maybe come back up on rebuttal here, but but the amicus here makes a really powerful argument, I think, about uh, the importance of dealing with landlords who um, take actions relative to tenants that uh, are, are in the form of retaliation do we also have to be concerned about the public policy running the other way what you know what I would call the it's probably overkill but the Pacific Heights problem you know the old the, the old movie about uh, tenants who um, are impossible to remove don't pay rent for long periods of time um, retaliation becomes a um, haven seems to me that there's also public policy that runs that way. And, I, and I'd and i like to have you maybe take a little time on rebuttal and just talk about the balance that you think the legislature has struck here in dealing with those two problems. I'm going to ask opposing counsel that question as well.
1: Even when you're out of time at the end of your argument, uh, usually the chief will just kind of provide you dispensation to answer whatever the last question was. But here, Justice Anderson seems to be almost like a teacher instructing the attorney to go think about it for half an hour while the other attorney is talking, Uh, Just a a strange state of affairs.
0: Yeah, I, I don't think I had seen that before. It would have made a little more sense for Justice Anderson to just save his question for rebuttal when he was ready for an answer to that question.
1: Another notable thing about this case is it was a pretty complicated deal, right? You have a statute that's not clear, another statute with multiple subdivisions that maybe impact on the first statute. And so everybody was struggling at points to uh, straighten it all out. The landlord's attorney probably had the hardest time of all. And to be fair, Justice Lohag was asking him uh, some very direct and difficult questions. Uh, But I don't know that I've ever seen the lengths of silence that we observed in this oral argument. Um, And maybe we'll play just one of those pauses for you just so you can get a sense of the atmosphere
2: do you have a defense of retaliation even if you've got a potted plant there and if so under what statute
0: counsel sometimes lawyers say they don't know i don't and know we move answer. on so the oral argument video isn't actually on him during that long pause because i think you actually have to speak into the mic for the camera to know that it flips back to the speaker and i'm not sure he was even breathing during that period so i can't see if he's fumbling or chugging his water or trying to buy time or what he's doing and then the chief comes in and tries to save him with an out but i'm not really sure if it's a save or kind of just like twisting the knife
1: i'm in physical pain right now mostly because i just strongly identify with what that attorney went through i thought for the most part he was fine uh it was a really complicated case and sometimes you're in a tough spot and you get anxious and you can't remember what you're talking about just just rough so um
0: we feel for you, Yeah, CHA attorney. So Mark, who is going to win this case?
1: I think it's tough to tell. I think the court was sincerely struggling through the kind of thicket of subdivisions that they're left to deal with here. Um, however, based on the tone of some of the questioning, I suppose I will go with the tenant winning. I thought Justice Lillehaug, uh Justice Thiessen, and Justice McKaig all seemed uh, pretty convinced on both. Uh, the statutory interpretation and equities that uh, the tenant should have a defense here and uh, one more vote to pick up doesn't seem like a big task.
0: Yeah, I think um, the easier question here would be that I don't think we're getting common law retaliation. I think nobody wanted to talk about that in oral argument, none of the attorneys did. But because it got so much less plain oral argument than the statutory 441 claim, if I had to guess that doesn't bode super well for Olson's argument on that ground, you'd think if the justices were actually considering it, they'd be wrestling more with the parameters of what the common law should be, what it already is, and they just they just weren't. As to the 441 statutory argument, I I think I do agree. Um, justices Howe, McKaig, and Thiessen seem to be working pretty hard to pave the way to an interpretation of complaint that was more expansive than a lawsuit, I think Some unequivocal statements against that idea were from Justice Hudson. Justice Chudich didn't weigh in specifically on the 441 question that I can remember. She just noted her willingness to consider common law or reject the reasons not to consider it. So if Lil Haug, and Thiessen can convince Chudich on the 441 claim, I think they will go with, like Mark said, Olson's broad interpretation of the word complaint in 441.
1: What do we learn from the case today, Allison?
0: Today, we learn from the case that uh, when in doubt, sue your landlord in the most formal sense all the time.
1: That wraps up uh, this episode of The Common Law. Uh, Check us out on Twitter at The Common Law on the website, thecommonlaw.com. Thanks to our co-directors of communication, Joy and Chloe. Uh, Thanks to the brilliant state law librarians at the Minnesota State Library who hook us up with the briefs and
0: uh, save our life on a regular basis uh,
1: in every way and uh, we'll be back next month.
0: Have a nice one, Commoners.
1: I wasn't listening. I was probably drinking.